This is The Guardian. Today, Manchester City may have assembled the best side English football has ever seen. Did they do it by cheating? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Jonathan, you were in Manchester last month watching Man City just blow away Real Madrid. How good was that performance? It was probably the best performance by an English team in Europe, certainly that I can remember, certainly in in the last couple of decades. Jonathan Liu is a sports writer with The Guardian. Real Madrid, we have to remember the multiple European champions, the defending holders of the competition. And with this real kind of, this mentality, uh, this, this indomitable champions mentality in the Champions League. And City, particularly in the first half hour, just took them apart. Real Madrid couldn't get out of their own half. They couldn't get on the ball. It really was the most consummate, awe-inspiring football that we've seen from an English team, or indeed, actually, any team. Manchester City have done it. They will go to Istanbul, and they could well make history there. The, The word that was used a lot in the dispatches afterwards on social media from commentators and pundits was perfection. It it was almost as if we were watching football at a technical level and a tactical level being perfected in real time. It's, It's hard to imagine a team playing better than that. The beautiful game has rarely been on show like this season in the English Premier League. At this point, it looks like nobody in England, nobody in all of Europe, can defeat Manchester City. In finals to be played tomorrow and next week, They're on track to do what only their rivals, Manchester United, did in 1999. Win the Premier League, the FA Cup and the Champions League in one season. If they pull it off, it'll be historic. And not just because it's so rare. Uh, Manchester City are the first Premier League champions to be investigated by the Premier League. There are 115 outstanding accusations of mainly financial irregularities but also kind of administrative errors. And if these charges are proven, what the Premier League is essentially saying to Manchester City is that during your glory years, while you were building this incredible team, you were cheating. You were breaking the the financial rules that are put in place to make sure that that clubs can't spend any more than they earn. That's the accusation that's being made and that's the cloud hanging over them. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, how Manchester City became all-conquering and why that might be a big problem for English football.
Jonathan, let's begin with the Manchester City that used to exist, the one before it was purchased by the Abu Dhabi Royal Sheikh Mansour. What kind of club was it? Well, at the time that Manchester City were bought by an investment group affiliated to Abu Dhabi in, in 2008, they were owned by the Thai Prime Minister Taksin Shinawatra, and they were they were in a, a period of huge flux. Results on the pitch were quite mixed. They were essentially a mid-table team with a good stadium that, that had been built for the, the 2002 Commonwealth Games, the City of Manchester Stadium, and some decent players, and obviously a very a large and, and passionate fan base, but also the players that they, they purchased in the kind of 2006-2008 era had got them into all kinds of financial problems. There was even some speculation that they may be, they may be forced into administration because of the financial trouble they were in. That's the club that Abu Dhabi bought, essentially. A club with a very high ceiling and lots of potential, but in huge amounts of short-term trouble and with a team that was you know, not producing consistent results on the pitch. And then once they're purchased, what do we begin to see happen to this mid-table, middling club with a big financial cloud hanging over it? The first thing that happens, and this often happens when clubs are taken over by new ownership, big marquee signings. One of the first big signings that Manchester City made was Rubinho. Tell us again, you have absolute confirmation, Alan, that Rubinho is now a Manchester City player. You have absolute confirmation. He's now a Manchester City player. Absolute confirmation. There's no way it can go back now. £32.5 million. They've gazumped Chelsea and these fans are delighted for it. That was the big first big statement signing. Then over the next couple of years, they begin to assemble this extraordinary side. They begin to try and bid for the world's best players, the world's best paid players. So right from the start, you can see this huge ambition. And, and yet on the pitch, it takes, it takes them a while to derive success from that because there isn't yet a, a coaching structure or the elite training facilities in place. There isn't the expertise behind the scenes in terms of sporting directors and recruitment and medical science that will eventually turn Manchester City into the best team in the world. So in the years after it's purchased, this new improved Manchester City is in the top tier of clubs. It wins the Premier League in 2012 and again two years later. But when do you begin to see it break away from the pack? The turning point in terms of the dominance is is signing Pep Guardiola as their manager in 2016. It's the culmination of a long-term project. And from that moment, this club that is winning trophies and is there and thereabouts turns into uh, an absolute trophy machine. Finally, we know it. First place in the Premier League does go to Manchester City. Coming out on top again in the Premier League, Manchester City. And it means that Manchester City have won the FA Cup to add to their Premier League and League Cup titles in this unprecedented year. They reached the Champions League final in 2021. And to date, that European trophy remains the only major prize that, that has eluded them. That's why the Champions League final is it's almost like the final frontier for them, because they, they've broken pretty much every domestic record. They, they hit 100 points, the first ever Premier League team to do that in 2018 they are beating teams by six or seven goals and these are frontiers and, and these are milestones that we haven't seen an English team ever achieve before Manchester City come along. 
What's interesting about this, Jonathan, is that Man City aren't the only club owned by very rich people, the only club able to buy the best players in the world. And yet they're the club that's emerged as this dominant force in English football. So what is it that makes them so different? There is a misconception, I think, amongst a lot of fans and certainly people who are new to football that success derives solely from buying good players. What City eventually learn and what drives their success is investment in all areas. So it's not just buying the best players and paying them the best wages. It's hiring the best coach and paying him the best wages. It's hiring the best backroom staff, the best medical staff, the best statistical analysis. And having that incredible financial cushion gives you the latitude to not only build the infrastructure, it gives you the time and the patience that you need in what is a very short-term results-driven game. It gives you margin for error. If, for example, you buy a couple of fullbacks for £60 million each and they don't work out, a club like Liverpool or a club like Arsenal, that's going to have a real effect on the business they can do in, in subsequent seasons. For Manchester City, they can just kind of write off that mistake and buy again in the next window. So it's, it's that consistency and the breadth of spending, which is what eventually helps them to crack it. Having the power and the wealth of a state behind you allows you to invest for the long term without the pressure of needing to see short-term returns. And we've seen the results of that this year, just sublime football week after week. But Man City have played this year under the cloud of some very serious accusations. Can you take me through those? Let's start, though, with a day of unprecedented action from the Premier League, who have charged Manchester City with over 100 breaches of its financial fair play rules. The Premier League champions say they're surprised and insist they're innocent. The case they date back almost to the very start of the Abu Dhabi takeover. So 2008 is the takeover. And there are all kinds of things that they're being accused of. The rules in football, in the Premier League and, and across Europe, are that your expenditure has to be tied to your income. You show this income and then this is what you can spend. And one of the main accusations against Manchester City is that during this period, they are signing sponsorship deals with hugely inflated values, often with companies that are affiliated to the state of Abu Dhabi, and that they are using these sponsorship deals to inflate their income beyond what it would be on the open market. They, they of course, would insist that this is all about board and they're paying market value. There are other accusations in, in terms of not cooperating with the investigation, not opening their books, not making the required financial disclosures. There are some accusations about essentially paying players off the book, not declaring the full, the full wages or salaries that they're paying to players. These are incredibly wide-ranging charges, but most of them relate to the idea of artificially inflating your income so you can then spend more than you would normally be allowed to. But what would be wrong with doing what they're accused of? Why can't Sheikh Mansour, who is extremely wealthy, just pump as much money as he likes into this club that he does own at the end of the day? The, the rules state that, you know, however rich you are, you can't just pump one billion pounds into a club. The rules forbid that. It needs to be proportional to the amount that you make. The reason these rules came in is that over, over 10, 20 years, a lot of owners came in, pumped huge amounts of money into their football clubs, and then either cut and run or demanded a return. And when they walked away, football clubs were left with huge debts that they couldn't sustain through their day-to-day 
income and revenue generation. And in, in, in lots of cases, clubs went to the wall, clubs went into administration, clubs went bust. And so these financial fair play rules were brought in to make sure that clubs were not spending significantly more than, than they were making in terms of revenue and, and, and that they could generate from, from their own commercial activities and, and sporting success. Uh, that's why these rules are in place. Mm, so this rule is about both protecting clubs from their owners, making sure they don't get saddled with debt that they can never pay back, but also making sure that a club can't succeed purely on the basis of the wealth of its owner. It needs to also be drawing in fans, selling merchandise, becoming a viable business rather than just a cash cow. Yeah, that, that is the theory, that they are, they are there to protect clubs from poor spending decisions, but also to maintain some kind of sporting balance where you can't have the competition warped overnight by an incredibly rich benefactor who then buys everybody in the league. In practice, the rules have proven to be a lot more toothless than they were probably intended to be because, you know, clubs clubs find a workaround for these things and the biggest clubs have always been able to to generate far more revenue than, than smaller clubs and over the last, you know, couple of decades have found increasingly, you know, imaginative ways of increasing that revenue still further. So you still have this incredible competitive imbalance on the pitch. And Jonathan, given that virtually every big club tries to find workarounds to these fair play rules, why is it that Manchester City has found itself under so much more scrutiny than others? You know, it's twofold. I think there is there is an element of, you know, they are the biggest and, and the best. And so they are kind of there to be shot at. And you know, the other element to it is that, as we discussed earlier, City was not a big club in the league of Arsenal, Chelsea, Manchester United, Liverpool at the time of the takeover. And so there is, I guess, a slight incredulity at how they have managed to generate so much revenue despite not having one of the biggest fan bases in the country, despite not having one of the biggest stadiums in the country and not having the same commercial appeal as a Manchester United or a Liverpool. People are wondering, how have you managed to to haul yourself into the league of the biggest clubs in the world in terms of revenue, not just in terms of you know wealth, but in terms of the amount of money you can generate when you don't have that massive global footprint? That's a slight gap in, in, in credulity. So what has Manchester City said publicly about these accusations? Well, they very, very strongly denied them. There was a, a similar case brought by UEFA at a European level a few years ago where UEFA brought charges against uh, Manchester City and City eventually took them all the way to the Court of Arbitration for Sport in Lausanne and got those cases thrown out, basically on a you know a statute of limitations technicality that the, the cases hadn't been brought in the required time frame. But they fought that very hard and, and, and very aggressively and very belligerently. There was a a leaked cache of files that, that was discovered by the German magazine Der Spiegel that uh, uncovered a lot of um, internal communications around Manchester City at that time. And one of the quotes from a club executive was that, you know, if these charges come to pass, we will hire 150 of the world's best lawyers to sue them for the next 15 years. And that essentially has been City's approach. Fight, deny, don't give an inch, call everything into question, and essentially, you know, they have been on a war footing at a corporate level for the last 10, 15 years. You know, that, that is essentially how they've treated this, you know, not only the UEFA investigation, but the Premier League investigation that, that is currently underway.
If you listen to the football chat shows, one of the topics that keeps coming up is whether these accusations have cast a pall over the club and their performance. That this is like watching old videos of Lance Armstrong. Like, you know what you're seeing is a little bit tainted. Do you think Man City fans feel that way, even just a little bit? I think if you asked most Manchester City fans about, you know, what they feel about the football that they've seen over the last 10 to 15 years, I think they would tell you that even if every charge is proven against them, even if every title and trophy was stripped, that the happiness and the joy and the moments that they enjoyed supporting Manchester City over those 15 years were worth it. What are they going to do, strip City of the titles? Yeah, but are you worried, Noel, that that winning of things will end up tainted? Not to me. I know what I felt. I know what I seen the day against Aston Villa. I was there. I know what I seen. I know what I seen against Real Madrid. I know what I seen. You know, the, the last minute goal by Sergio Aguero to win the Premier League. The long-range strike by Vincent Company that essentially wins in the Premier League in, in 2019. Manchester City with a massive goal. The breakthrough at last. The cup finals, the treble, if they if they win it this season, that will essentially have been worth it. You can take away Manchester City's titles. You, you know you can amend the historical record, but you can't take away the moment. And if you think about all the teams that you know will have rightfully won the Premier League or the FA Cup or the League Cup in the years that Manchester City actually did win them, if, if these charges are upheld, they'll never get that moment back. You know, the, the, the course of, of English football history has been irrevocably changed. Teams have missed out on the on the Champions League. Teams have, have been relegated because of Manchester City. So, you know, you can change the historical record, but the sport itself and the moments that it created, you know, you can't really touch those. Yeah, although they've, they've denied those moments of joy and of triumph to, that would have rightfully belonged to other teams. Well, yeah, exactly. And that's, that's what, when you watch Manchester City these days, knowing what they've been accused of, knowing that, you know, the way that their investment has, has kind of warped and distorted the landscape of English football, that bond of trust between the fan and the spectacle on the pitch it's hard to maintain that bond of trust. That's the most vital thing. It's the, it's the atomic component of sport itself that, that we trust what we're seeing. And, you know, it's important to note that Manchester City are not the only team who have been accused of breaking the rules. You know, other teams, other clubs around Europe have been found guilty of breaking financial fair play rules. Uh, and across this whole era of football as a whole, there has been a kind of you know, a breach in, in that bond of trust between between the viewer and the spectacle. We don't really know whether what we're seeing is, is legitimate or in many cases moral. And, you know, a lot of fans don't care. A lot of fans are just enjoying, you know, what they're seeing. And I think a lot more fans are feeling quite conflicted about what, about, about what they're watching. Is it making football in this era unfair? Yeah, well, I mean, football essentially has always been unfair in that there have always been big clubs and they're always in small clubs and the big clubs have always been able to prey on the, on the small clubs. But but yeah, I mean, there is a, a real deficit of fairness in, in the current game. The sport as a whole has been chasing massive financial gains. The big clubs are essentially trying to eat uh, the smaller clubs, you know, pick off their best players, pick off their best staff. So yeah, you have, the, you have this huge gap between clubs who will, however badly they screw up, We'll never get relegated. We'll never 
um, miss out on European competition for more than a couple of seasons. And the teams at the bottom who are struggling to survive, are struggling to stay in, in the league, are struggling to, to find players and, and are struggling to attract fans. You know, if you are a club like Oldham or Rochdale or Macclesfield, these are all clubs in the greater Manchester area who have uh, had real financial problems over the last few years. One of their biggest problems is getting people through the gates because everybody in Manchester, every kid in Manchester wants to wants to follow City or United. That's that's one of the, the knock-on effects of, of these these big super clubs. They kind of eat everything around them and everything under them. On the one hand, it does allow us to see the kind of like exquisite football that Man City is playing at the moment. But I wonder if there's a risk, on the other hand, that fans of the sport in general start to lose interest if they feel like one club is just so dominant that there's almost no point competing anymore. Yeah, this is, this is an ongoing debate. I mean, I, I live in Germany where Bayern Munich have won 11 titles, 11 Bundesliga titles in a row. And yet there's not this sense that German football is dying or German football is moribund. I think, you know, fans of, of smaller clubs would prefer the title to be shared around a lot more fairly. But if the organism as a whole is healthy, if fans can go and watch their local team in a sustainable competition and have a decent chance of success. You know, that is what most fans want. You know, they like the ritual of going to watch their team. They don't want to have to worry about their team going bust if they get if they get relegated. And that's essentially what, what English football has become. It's, you know, you have this morass of, of mid-table to, to lower table clubs who are just so desperate to cling on to the, the financial rewards of the Premier League because the drop-off in revenue from the Premier League to the, the championship is just is catastrophic. It warps the whole feel of the, of the league because you essentially have six or seven teams who are trying to win things, win titles, qualify for Europe, and 12 or 13 teams below them whose only real long-term objective is to survive. And that's not a healthy competition. Coming up, will Manchester City win the treble and then lose it in court? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today in Focus is supported by Better Help. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. 
Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Jonathan, you're going to be at Wembley tomorrow for the FA Cup final. Manchester City are taking on their great rivals, Manchester United, who themselves were dominant for so long, who won the treble way back in 1999. Aside from the football, what other dynamics will be at play in that match? Well, the divide between Manchester City and and Manchester United on the pitch has been pretty conspicuous this last few seasons. Manchester United haven't won the Premier League since... Alex Ferguson's last season in, in 2013, and you know, in contrast to Manchester City fans who are who are delighted with their Abu Dhabi owners and the success that they've they've bought them, there's a, a huge majority of, of Manchester United fans who have been very vocally protesting the ownership of of their club. They're owned by the Glazer family, who are Florida businessmen who have been unpopular virtually from the moment that they that they joined the club, and. The Glazers are now in talk to sell to either a consortium led by Jim Ratcliffe, who's the, the chief executive of Ineos, the petrochemicals company, or a man called Sheikh Jassim, who is a Qatari politician affiliated to the state of Qatar, who would transform the you know, the, the wealth and the fortunes and the outlook of, of Manchester United, and by extension, English football, because if that Qatari bid succeeds, you, you then have three clubs, Manchester City owned by Abu Dhabi, Newcastle owned by Saudi Arabia, and Manchester United owned by Qatar, you know, essentially, you know, through kind of investment funds and, and but essentially controlled by three of the largest powers in, in the Gulf region. And that has, you know, that has the potential to, to transform the, the, the landscape of English football forever. And could anything stop this trajectory of English football? Like, for example, this investigation that's hanging over Man City, how much is that going to be worrying them? And, and if they are found guilty, what kind of penalties could they face? Well, if, if they are found guilty, there's, there's really no limit and no precedent on the kind of punishment they could face. It, it could be anything from massive fines, points deductions, having trophies taken away, relegation. I don't think the more apocalyptic scenarios will come to pass purely because the Premier League is not simply a regulator. It's a, it's, it's a, a sporting league, you know, and a product. It, it, it's essentially selling a product as well. And I think it would, it would take a huge amount for them to say, well, actually, this thing that we've been trying to sell you for the last decade uh, wasn't actually real. That's what I think will be a massive break on, on whatever sanctions they impose. The other thing, that could potentially stop this trajectory is a, is a government regulator, is government intervention. That that is essentially the only way that I think we're going to to change the financial settlement of English football to a sufficient degree, um, and put put the brake on 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 the richest clubs from from it, it kind of inexorably doing what they want. There is a regulator that is being set up. It has nothing to say about state ownership. And it has very little to say about kind of the moral dimension of who should own a football club and why. So I'm not, I'm not massively hopeful in that direction either.
Jonathan, there's going to be nearly 100,000 people at Wembley tomorrow, millions more fans watching across the world. Do you think those fans have any real power left in the future of those teams that they're watching? Or is this game now just about billionaires and their influence and their money? Yeah, I mean, the, the last few decades have seen the power of, of fans to affect change in the game slowly dwindling. There was, you know, there have been signs in, you know, in recent months that fans are becoming a, a lot more vocal and strident in terms of demanding change in the game. A very significant minority of United fans have been, you know, really, you know, vocally against the the Qatari takeover. And you know they feel it would it would take the club forever, and you know they they want to do whatever they can to to get it stopped. But ultimately, they don't have any legislative or institutional or formalized power in the game. All they have, all they really have, is a is a voice. And so that that's the bind that I think we find ourselves in. That the people who who care most about the game, the people who are most important to football, i.e., the fans, the passion behind it, are the ones with, I guess, the least say in how it's run. Do you think decades from now, even if Man City are not found guilty, if they face no punishment, that we may look back on this era of their dominance in the game with a kind of asterisk over it, that, that we may say, yeah, they were incredible, but... Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, when we look back on this era with with the benefit of hindsight, you know, yeah, 20 years from now, maybe... It'll seem a bit like a fever dream, this lawless era where clubs essentially did what they want, where the regulatory framework was so weak and so inadequate that there was very little to stop clubs from spending what they want, doing what they wanted and turning the competition into you know, a, a financial arms race. I think when we look back on this era, you know, we'll, we'll look at it as a kind of madness. How did we allow this, this sport? the national sport, the, the thing that more people in this country love than anything else, really. How do we allow it to, to become this this plaything of the unaccountable super-rich? And I think in, in that in that sense, it's in many ways a, a parallel for so many other areas of, of British society. Jonathan, thank you so much. Thanks a lot for having me. That was Jonathan Liu, a sports writer with The Guardian, whose reporting and columns you can find at theguardian.com. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Natalie Ktena and Tom Glasser. Sound design was by Solomon King. The executive producers were Phil Maynard and Homer Khalili. Have a good weekend. We'll be back Monday. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. 
clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.